Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is Black media for the new millennium. Welcome to this broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, which is an award-winning weekly radio broadcast and podcast that started in 2012 to bring awareness to legalized slavery and human trafficking in the United States, preserved by the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It is hosted by a former prisoner, Tyson McCullum, activist mother Khadijah, a former prisoner and Grammy-nominated music artist Maxwell Melvins, and of course, yours truly, Black Talk Radio Network founder Scotty T. Reed. We broadcast this program at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern every Wednesday night exclusively on the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, tonight we have a special guest joining us in conversation. We have a former California prison guard by the name of DJ Vodka who blew the whistle on what he called rogue prison guards detailed in his book The Green Wall, the story of a brave prison guard's fight against corruption inside the United States' largest prison system. Mr. Vodka spent 16 years as a decorated guard and was part of the investigative services unit responsible for solving crimes that occurred inside the prison. Mr. Vodica gave testimony at a California Senate hearing on the issue which led to reforms and resignations of officials. Mr. Vodica's story is one about having the courage to stand up for what's right even though it seems everyone around you insists on doing wrong. And again, let, let me... Uh, Go ahead and, and clear up some information. Um, our other two panelists, uh, Mother Khadijah and Brother Tyson, have to work, so they won't be able to join us tonight. I, I'm not sure, but we may have Maxwell Melvin's on the line. Max, is that you at 623? Okay, if that's not Maxwell, this person um, who keeps unmuting themselves, um, when we're ready to take calls from the listeners, you can hit star, star to unmute yourself. But at this time, we are not taking calls and we're trying to watch uh, our background noise and preserve the quality of the broadcast. Appreciate you tuning in, um, but please remain muted until we open up uh, the phone lines. Um, 
do want to remind you that Black Talk Radio Network only exists because of the nonprofit Black Talk Media Project, uh, which is based here in North Carolina, where I am. I'm the founder of Black Talk Media Project, and we need desperately need your support if we are to continue our media operations. Black Talk Radio Network has been online and on air uh, going on 12 years. It'll be 12 years in November of this year. Uh, time really goes by fast when you're putting in work. Um, but yeah, please continue to support us. All donations are tax deductible. You can make donations via our website at blacktalkradionetwork.com. You don't have to have a PayPal account in order to make a donation via PayPal. It accepts any credit card or debit card uh, without you having to have a PayPal account. Also, we also support our efforts uh, by raising money by offering you a subscription to our social media platform, btrcommunity.com. It's just $24 a year, uh, an ad-free, data mining-free social media network. You'll never see any ads unless it's posted by the members themselves of their own businesses or, or something that they're promoting. But in terms of the platform itself, we don't display any kind of ads. We don't do any data mining because we do not intend to sell your information. And when you sign up, the only thing we have is your name and your email address so that we can register your account. Other than that, we don't have your personal information and you can use the network in complete anonymity. All right. And uh, last but not least, please visit any of the uh, sponsors uh, on, for their promos that's on the network. Uh, we got quite a few. If you make purchases or join any of those programs, it does generate a small fee for our Black Talk Media Project. And now that I've gotten all the house cleaning out the way, um, we are joined on the line by uh, DJ Vodka. And let me just open up his mic. Good evening to you, sir. Uh, Mr. Vodka, are you there? Okay, I may have opened the wrong uh, mic. Okay, Mr. Vodka. Uh, Mayor, can you hear me? Yes, we hear you. Thank you again for reaching out to me um, with your book, The Green Wall. Um, very interesting book. I haven't gotten through all of it yet. Um, but again, the, we have linked up to his book. It's available on Amazon and other uh, publishers, outlets. Uh, but uh, we have linked to the book. I want to thank you, DJ uh, Vodka, for sending me the book and just really appreciate, you know, you taking a principal stance in the career field that you chose, um, even though, you know, you could have just turned turned away, looked the other way, um, not engage in the activity yourself, but just simply just look the other way because we, we see that happening way too much, man. And, 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 and also, DJ... I had heard of you before, but I couldn't quite place it until I looked on YouTube to find, see if I could find a clip of the Senate hearings in California that you participated in. I could not, yes, but I did come across an interview you gave to BBC that was posted on YouTube in 2008. And I don't know if you know it. But it was a clip of what you talked about, how you feared for your life and everything that I have heard sampled in hip hop music. And I was when I heard that, I was like, now nah, I, I heard this before. Yeah, this was on this hip hop track. Um, 
And so, you know, some I'm friends with a lot of underground hip hop artists that you won't find on the radio or or at the Grammys right. or anything like that. And they had found that clip, man, and and they used it. And I was like, that's the DJ that they talking about. I'm gonna go ahead and play that clip, man. See if I can jog your memory. All right, sir. Donald Vodica is now in hiding. We had to agree his lawyer came to the interview and we couldn't say where we met them. Ever since I broke the code of silence, I've lost everything. I've lost friends that I had associated with the Department of Corrections. I've lost my, my, some of my family members. I've lost everything. I lost my career. I lost financially. It has devastated me. I'm on the move all the time. Why? Because I fear for my life. And right there, that was where they cut it off and and sampled that in a hip-hop song, man. So you part of hip-hop culture. I, I bet you didn't know that. No, I did not know that, Scotty. I mean, I like to hear some of that hip-hop music if, if I can find it. I mean, I like to hear it. I'm going to have to dig through my library and, and I'll send it to you. But for, no, for, no problem. But for those who ne- never heard of you, could you know, I read a little bit about your bio, but in your own words, can you tell us who DJ Vodka is? Well, DJ Vodka, I, I, I grew up in uh, California most of my life. Uh, my, my father was in the United States military, the Air Force, and I uh, ended up in California and then uh, went to uh, junior college and played some college basketball back in the 80s and and I didn't really know what I wanted to do from there, so I, uh, I joined the United States Army in 1983, and I uh, was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina from 1983 to 1987. I was detached to a Special Forces unit at Fort Bragg. And then shortly before I got out, my father sent me an application because I wanted to get some type of law enforcement. I have a two-year degree in criminal justice. And uh, my father sent me an application for the Department of Corrections in California they were hiring, and then and, and uh, as soon as I got home, I started testing for the Department of Corrections. In uh, 1988, I entered the Department of Corrections, and my first uh, state prison I worked at was Corcoran State Prison down in the Central Valley, home of Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that you were in the military. I was in the military um also in the U.S. Army, I went in in 87, though. Um, you probably were getting out uh, around that time. I was just getting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going going in. Um, I, I was stationed out there at Schofield Barracks in, in Hawaii in 87. That was my first duty oh. station. I spent like six years. <laughs> six years. You had a good. You had, you had a good at leisure. You got to see all that. Those nice hot waves and the nice weather. Well, after uh, considering that it's an island that only takes about less than two hours to drive around, after about year or two, the newness wears off and you get bored just like you would uh, anywhere else. Um, so, That's I mean, it, it's a great place to visit, um, but I wouldn't want to live there considering how expensive it is to to live there. Um, but um, let, let's get into, so you find your, you come out the military, um, your father tells you about uh, open positions at the Department of, of Correction in California. Now, you mentioned that you began testing. Now, this is a question that often comes up in, in the community that I'm in. Um, about whether we're talking police officers, whether we're talking um, any type of law enforcement officer, uh, whether you're talking correction officers in in the prison, 
now you mentioned testing. What does that testing look like? And and does that testing also uh, include like some sort of empathy screening? Because I find that that's a problem where you have a, a brutality in certain professions and these individuals just don't seem to be empathetic towards the people that they're quote-unquote policing or, in your case, guarding. Yeah, I mean, we, when we do the testing, we go through like a written test. And then after that, we uh, sit down with a, like a panel of three people that are, that are not part of the Department of Corrections. They're actually from the, the city of, uh, like, wherever you're testing at. And um, they ask you a serious, a lot of questions about, you know, why do you want to enter the Department of Corrections? And, and they want to know, um, how do you feel about uh, uh, inmates that have been um, sentenced by the courts? And they, they, they really get into detail. They really watch you and read you and, and look at you, and then they make the determination there if you go further than that. Okay, so that's sort of like some preliminary screening to find out yes, what sir. what type of individual you are as a person. But I, I would imagine, though, it's pretty easy to fake those, right? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I mean, the department, you know, when I was going through, Scotty, the prisons in the system in California in 1988 was booming, mm-hmm. and, and they needed to rush a lot of people through the academies to get to these prisons to fill them before the inmates were uh, being moved towards those prisons. So they were really pushing for prison guards. My, my academy class was 350 people. And out of the, after six weeks of uh, academy, uh, about 300 of us uh, graduated and went to different prisons. But they really they were really pushing for it. And um, it was just like, like it was like a number. They, did, they just need to make a quota. Okay. Okay. Now you said you you started in 1988. You spent six sixteen years. So you came out there about when? I came out in um, 2006. Um, I was on after I um, exposed the Department of Corrections. On I broke the code of silence against a, a, a group of rogue guards who called themselves the Green Wall, who were setting up inmates for more time, planting weapons in their cells. Um, Give, trying to get the third. Some of them didn't have three strikes. Some of them only had two strikes in the state of California. So they were they were going after all races: African Americans, Mexicans, whites, Asians. They didn't care who you are. If you pissed them off or made, made them upset during the time, you know, made their lives rough. These guys would target you and, and set you up for a third strike, and you weren't going to come home. So the, it, it so it's not like there was some kind of monetary. Uh, motive or an incentive so it's not like like we hear uh, traffic ticket quotas and what have you that's pretty much been verified that departments have uh, quotas for individual officers to write tickets so that they can you know meet their revenue goals and so in a prison setting you know the guard doesn't have any kind of monetary incentive to write someone up now in terms of let's say an officer on the street is looking for a promotion um he may try to build up an arrest record you know uh of uh, 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 hopefully you know arrests that were justified but i don't see that sort of incentive in the environment that you in so it sounds like to me dj that you're saying if i may call you dj yes sir you can Scotty. that's fine okay I, I, my name is donald donald but i go by dj all my life okay and 
I don't know if you ever thought about a career in the music industry, but you got the perfect name for it, DJ Vodka. <laughs> I keep thinking about that, right? So the so the incentive, it really wasn't any kind of monetary incentive. What about promotions? I mean, do do they look at how? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. First promotion, first promotions. The upper administrations, the sergeants and lieutenants and captains of the yards would look at individual officers for their performance and see how they're how they handle inmates uh how they uh, make drug busts or contraband busts or or they would look at that and they would look at the officer saying hey this officer's a, a go-getter type of thing or doesn't put up with the, uh, the crap from from the inmates and all that but some of these guards were in there they they would treat these uh convicts and inmates like like dirt you know they didn't care who they were because they all thought that just because they have a badge on their chest, they're, they're, they can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you you mentioned right when you got hired that they were sort of in a rush to hire guy, uh, a lot of guards because of the what? What was this, the result of the increasing prison population? Was it because of three strikes? I know in the 80s, we're, we're still in the Reagan administration when you first went in, uh, which was then followed by George H.W. Bush and, of course, Clinton, which is synonymous with, his name is synonymous with mass incarceration. So what what was the cause of this influx of inmates, if, if you can, you know, assign it to anything? Well, the, the, the county jails in California, L.A. County, all the county jails in the state of California were so overcrowded and so full that they needed to, to build prisons in California. Um, I opened up Corcoran State Prison, which was the 16th prison built uh, in 1988. Uh, and when I got out in 2006, the 32nd prison was built. So in, in the 16 years, there was 14 prisons, brand new prisons built in the state of California. Because what happens in the county jails in the state of California, they're so overcrowded and they need to move these guys and get them out of the county jails and get them to state prisons that, uh, that weren't overcrowded. So they need to build those state prisons. It's, it was a big moneymaker for a lot of people. So what, what I'm hearing is, is that these people in county jail, um, and this is just based off of research and, you know, me being involved in this issue is a lot of people are in county jail awaiting trial and they're in those county jails because the, they couldn't make bail. And so these are people who are technically innocent in the criminal justice system, but since they could not make bail, they're housed in, in the county jails. And so it sounds like to me at that time in California, they were making so many arrests on the, on the street that the county jail started to overflow. And so they then looked to move these technically innocent people who haven't been convicted yet into prisons. Is, is that accurate? Well, that's pretty good actor, Scotty, but they, they wouldn't, um, they, most of the people that were sentenced in the county jails already have been sentenced, and, but okay. there was no word about housing in the state. Oh, really? There was, no, there was no room for anybody. So these guys were already sentenced in the county jails. They were just sitting in the county jails doing their time. So the county jails needed to move those guys out to make more room for other people coming in. So that's why the, the Department of Corrections was pushing so many guards through and getting one prison built after another to house these guys and draw, you know, all the county jails in the state of California. So there's a, there were a lot of them sitting in there already been sentenced. 
Some of them have been sitting in the, in the county jails for years, already been sentenced. So they're running, doing their time in the county jail rather than in a state prison. Okay. Now, was three strikes, um, what I'm trying to understand is what the state's reason, why there were so many arrests in California um, at, at that time. Um, I suspect if statistics held true as they do today, that the majority of these people were in prison for nonviolent or in jail for nonviolent drug crimes. Is, it, would you say that's accurate? Oh yes, I say that's very accurate. There was a, a lot of uh, a lot of individuals in the county jails that are in for uh, less crimes, like drug related. You know, not not the true felony like murder or whatever, but a lot of them are in there for less less crimes. Okay, and um, a little bit about the demographic of the prisoners uh, that you observed during during your sixteen years. Would you say that it's accurate to state that they came from some of the most impoverished, um, disenfranchised communities throughout California? Yes, sir. Uh, majority of them come from the uh, the projects or a rundown area in L.A. or San Francisco or the Bay Area. They're the, they're the less fortunate you know, growing up in, the, in a gang environment and all that and adapting to the streets and, you know, trying to, to you know, make good. But the majority of them came from the poverty level. Okay. Now, you were saying earlier, uh, we were talking about why were these rogue guards in this gang that you that you uh, call the Green Wall? By the way, did you give them that name or was that their own name they came up with, the Green Wall? Oh, and... In the California Department of Corrections, we wore green uniforms. Okay. Green jumpsuits or green, you know, khaki green pants and a khaki shirt or green pants and a khaki shirt. So that's what they were, we were dressed in green uniforms. So I said, you know what? And that's what they call themselves the green wall. And they actually had monikers. Some of these prison guards would actually have monikers, uh, uh, tattoos printed on their, on their, on their arms or legs, GW, listen to this guy, or they call themselves the 723. The seventh letter of the alphabet is G, and the 23rd is W. So they actually had tattoos on their bodies uh, indicating that they were part of this gang. Wow. Wow. Okay. And and, and so... That's, that's in the book, that's in the book too, Scotty. Right, right. Now, again, uh, we're talking to the author of The Green Wall, the story of a brave prison guard's fight against corruption inside the United States' largest prison system, Mr. D.J., um, vodka. Now, we were talking earlier about what was the incentive. Um, now, you did say, oh, by the way, I just took quick note. The green wall sounds very similar to the blue line to me, um, which is police officers behind or the blue wall of silence, uh, so to speak. So so I guess they were playing off of that as well. Now, you, you also said that while there is there was incentive um, to write inmates up, um, to try to get get them additional charges, try to get them their third strikes that, yes, that can figure into promotions. But it also sounded like you said that um, we're implying that some of these guys were just doing this out of spite because the inmate did something they didn't like or, or how, how would you characterize? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, they would. They would. Uh, if, if there was a certain individual on, on the yard that's getting ready to parole to go home, like you know, he's been locked up for 10, 15, 20 years, and he's getting ready to parole, go home. Uh, these individuals, part of the green wall, 
would end up pulling out uh, the inmate out of their cell or, or and, and then handcuffing them to the rail while these individuals from the Green Law would, would go in their, his cell and go search and they would pu- pull out an inmate manufactured weapon from his jumpsuit and, and show it to him and say, hey, you're not going home now. You're looking at your third strike. So these prison guards were setting up inmates for more time um, and, and doing the illegal criminal activity on these guys that uh, were sort of troublemakers on the yards but they said, you know, trying to, they were, they're, they're thinking they're untouched, but these guys would pick them out and then uh, go plant weapons in their cells and give them that third strike. Wow. Now, again, then, I, you know what? And then when they, Scotty, when they get, when they get to, when they, when they do all this, you know, when they have to go back to the district attorney's office in the county their the prison's at. Right. And a lot of times, you know, the district attorney, you know, these inmates don't have money to, to have their own lawyers and all that, so they have the public defenders come in and, and try to defend this. But once once a guard planted a weapon in an inmate's cell, he's got the physical evidence. You know, most most juries out here in the state of California were going for the side of the prison guard or the officer. Right, right. Deciding on, and now this, this individual's looking at a third strike. And it's not like that anyone's going to take the weapon and and conduct forensic testing to see if it has the inmate's uh, fingerprints on it or DNA on it. I imagine nothing like, no testing like that was going on, not even on at the uh, being initiated by the public defender or, or whoever the uh, attorney was set to uh, defend them in court. And what they, you know, I went to some, some of those trials and all that when I was out in public convey as an evidence officer. I, I, when I got a weapon from an inmate cell or whatever, I, I tried to dust it for fingerprints and all that, but I couldn't get the fingerprints because there was no, no fingerprints on it. But these guys would say they try. Okay. They would try, but I don't think they try. They just so they tried, but they couldn't get anything off it. And then the district attorney says, we still have the evidence. Right. So it's just a matter of um, a number of guards word against the inmates. And we know how society is conditioned to always uh, uh, side on the side of authority. Correct. Okay. Now, DJ, how how long were you working um, in in the um, California correction system when you started witnessing this? Was it off the bat? What, did it happen like year five, year ten? Um, you know. No, uh, well, well, what happened, Scotty? When I left Corcoran State Prison, I went to another prison in Calipatria, down in the lower desert area of California, and opened that prison up. And then I I transferred to the notorious. Pelican Bay State Prison up in Northern California, and then uh, I was there for two years as an investigator, and then another prison, brand new prison, opened up in the Central Valley or the Coastal Valley by Monterey, and it was Salinas Valley State Prison in 1996. So I ended up transferring down there, my wife and, and my little boy I had, and ended up transferring down there, and then uh, and shortly after that, uh, I was there for a couple of years, but I was there for six years, so uh, we had a big riot during a Thanksgiving riot. The seven Hispanic inmates attacked staff, and uh, during a Thanksgiving, you know, on the yard, they attacked them for no reason. Or they say for no reason, but when I found out later on, certain prison guards were disrespecting the Southern Hispanics, basically the Mexican mafia, and they were disrespecting them on the yard. So they got a little upset, and they wanted to target staff on Thanksgiving Day because nobody's there. There's a little less staff. Administration's not there minimal staff on the yard 
And mm-hmm. I was there that day, and they attacked staff. So shortly after that, the prison guards, these guys who, who were part of the Green Wall, would take these inmates and bring them into their cells and, and abuse them. I mean, take them into a, like a laundry room or a, a back hallway and beat the crap out of them and then throw them back in their cells and destroy all their property. So they, they, were, they were going above the law. Okay. And and so what was your reaction when you saw this, when you learned that this go- was going on? I was pissed. Well, back then I, I was I was the evidence officer for that yard that day, and then the lieutenant uh, asked me to photograph these inmates prior to them putting them back in their cells. So I told some of the prison guards guys part of the Green Wall, I said, hey, I, I need to photograph some of these guys. Well, they weren't too happy with me. And some of the prison guards got very vocal and vulgar with me and Asked me what the f I'm doing with these prison uh, with these inmates, and I said I'm just doing my job. You do your job. So they, they knew right away that I was sort of protecting you know, the convicts or the inmates from uh, from you know my photographs shows them no injuries, but when they get into their cells, they beat them up. Okay, okay. Um, now I do want to at this time, if um, any of the listeners or any of the callers on the line, if y'all have a question or a comment. Uh, again, our guest tonight is former prison guard and a whistleblower, Mr. DJ Vodica, uh, who blew the whistle on a, 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 a prison gang that was... <laughs> guards were the members of this prison gang. So when you think typically think about prison gangs, um, you don't think about the guards being in the gang, but that's what he's detailing in his book, The Green Wall. Um, so please check that out if you get an opportunity. But if you have a question or a comment for him, uh, you can give us a call at 704-802-5056. That's 704-802-5056. Hit the star key twice. Uh, that will unmute you on the board. I'll see you. Um, but always uh, watch your background um, noise. Now, DJ, I, w- I want to ask you, though, now, I think, and this is just my opinion, that, well, it's not really my opinion. All right, so you're a white guy, uh, DJ. Yes, I am. You're you're a white guy. Now, I've seen studies, and these were done at the university level, of where they were doing empathy tests. That's why I was asking you earlier about if they do any kind of empathy screening when they hire guards and what have you. And it was two different tests that produced the same result. And it said that that white people, when they viewed uh, images of non-white people engaged in certain activity, that it didn't register anything on, I guess, whatever machine they had them hooked up to. And and but when it showed the uh, other white people like them engaged in the same sort of activities or whatnot, that it registered for empathy. And so the conclusion was, is that people are more empathetic towards people of their own group. Okay. And and that sounds logical to me. You know, you, you're going to be empathetic to your family, your friends, um, you know, your community. And if you happen to grow up in a, in an all white environment, then, you know, I can see how that might be the case. But what was in your background that made you have empathy for these inmates, regardless of their skin color? What what made you have empathy and see them as human beings and see what these guards were doing as, as, as a violation of their human rights? You could have just easily looked the other way, man. 
Yeah, but Scotty, I, I was raised by uh, my mom and dad, and, and, and I was raised with morals. Um, I was raised, you know, I mean, like I said, we're there to watch over these guys, you know, as prison guards. The courts are the ones that sentence them, and the juries are the ones that sentence them. But, you know, I mean, I, I treated all each individual, you know, with respect. And I didn't care if they were black, white, Mexican, Asian, and any color. Uh, that's a human being. You know, as long as they showed me respect, I'd show them respect back. And and some of the prison guards that I worked with, they didn't they didn't like that. They didn't, they some of them, uh, you know, they were were they they show special circumstances to a white prison guard would show special circumstances to a white inmate and then treat black inmates with uh, you know like they were pieces of uh, dirt you know like that and and I saw that and, and sometimes I would go up to the correctional officer and say look you got to treat these guys with equal respect otherwise you know something's going to happen to you or and you're not going to like it and uh, sure enough some of these prison guards uh, got their butts beat behind that. Hmm. Right. And and, you know, I do agree with you that that creates a dangerous situation because, you know, um, you talk about in your book how you guys were outnumbered guards versus inmates. Can you talk about a little bit about the overcrowding aspect that made it dangerous, not just for the inmates themselves, but for guards as well, because as you probably know, um, California's prison overcrowding um, reached the Supreme Court during uh, President uh, Senator Kamala Harris, who's from California. Of course, you know that. Um, but when she was the attorney general, uh, the California uh, correction system had a case make it to the Supreme Court about about overcrowding and to which the Supreme Court uh, deemed overcrowding as cruel and unusual punishment um, per, I guess, the 18th, um, not the 18th, the 8th Amendment. So can you, can you talk about being in an environment like that that's so severely overcrowded and you guys being outnumbered like that? Yeah, well... Most of the prison yards, most of the prisons house about 4,000 inmates to a prison, and that's we have four different yards. Each each yard houses about 1,000 inmates, uh, all different races. And then uh, us prison guards, probably two or three of us walk in the yards on, on a daily basis with six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred inmates out there, and we only have uh, our observation, our yard gunner keeping an eye on us. So yeah, we're like we're outnumbered 100 to one. And, and, and we don't carry a gun on the yards. We carry full equipment. The only thing we don't carry is, is a gun on the yard. We, we carry batons, gas, gas, and all that. And, it's, and, and if you walk the yards, it's, it's how you show respect. You respect the inmates, and you say hi to them and talk to them. You're not there to be their friends, but if you show them respect, yeah. And, and that, the prisons were just so overcrowded. And, 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 and I heard about that thing you were talking about, Scotty. They had to release in the next year or two years, had to release at least twenty thousand inmates out of the Department of Corrections, and but uh, slowly they were they were doing that. Mm. Now, my understanding, and, and if you have some information that's different than my own, is that after the Supreme Court ordered them to do so, they still still didn't do it right away, um, and, and then. Instead of releasing elderly prisons, which prisoners which are not likely to reoffend and end back up in prison, or those convicted of nonviolent drug crimes, low-level 
offenders, instead of releasing them, what California did was start contracting with the private prisons. Is that That's correct? Okay. They did that. They they, they housed them. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the state of Arizona, which is right next to California, they they put them on buses and they stuck them out here in private prisons until their sentence ran out. It's all about money. I mean, anytime this whole thing is about money. Um, you know, they would get money from the Department of Corrections. Just just to house one prisoner in the state of California, Scotty, it cost the taxpayers almost $65,000 a year just to house one one inmate. And, and the last time before this U.S. Supreme Court ruling was, there was 165,000 inmates uh, confined in state prisons in the state of California. So you're, you're, if you, I don't know what the math is, but if you're doing 65,000 times 160,000, a year that's that's how much money they were making yeah a lot a lot of money a lot of money and and they're really making a lot of money now with trump's Im- yeah. immigration policies uh and what have you um so so yeah um you know criminal cr- criminal criminal justice criminal justice reform is huge right now it's a hot topic in the, in the united states and and you know what and i and i see on twitter and facebook and things everything happening with these uh, you know, prisons and county jails and all that. It, it, it's just a shame. I mean, criminal justice reform it, it needs to be revamped and it needs to be revamped quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a lot of my comrades would tell you that we don't need reform, but we need abolishment of, of, of certain practices. And, and for example, um, the 13th Amendment, which I always point to people. And I usually ask a new guest um, this question, and for some reason I just forgot to ask you, but I want to ask you the question now. So um, the 13th Amendment of the United States, which was ratified and, and signed into law, and made part of the U.S. Constitution in 1865 has been cited as the end of quote-unquote slavery in the United States. But um, somewhere in 2011, 2012, right before uh, New Abolitionist Radio was created, I had happened to come across the text of the 13th Amendment. Never came across it in school. We didn't read all the constitutional amendments or the Constitution when I was in high school, didn't cover it when I was in college or or anything like that. Um, Of course, I wasn't in the law field or or anything, but common sense and having a pretty good reading comprehension, when I read the 13th Amendment, it said to me that slavery has not been abolished. So I'm going to read it to you. No pressure, but I'm going to read the 13th Amendment to you, and then I want you to make a determination of whether this language abolishes slavery or or creates something else. Um, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So, does that about sound like it's abolishing slavery to you, DJ? No, I mean, I mean, it's it's still an ongoing thing. I mean, it's an ongoing thing in in every state in the United States. You know, I bring it up because you keep you've mentioned several times the money aspect of it, and and of course that's what 
chattel slavery, what I call pre-1865 slavery was all about, and that is what the present uh, system of slavery is all about, except for it's different now. Of course, they got to pass laws and criminalize uh, certain behaviors, then once they get a conviction, then they can put you in prison. Immediately after the Civil War, after the passage of the 13th Amendment, you know, it gave rise to convict leasing where these prisoners, mostly black, were then targeted, sent right back to those plantations to work as laborers or sent to the mines or sent to the work on the railroads. And, and what have you. And so, you know, that's when we talk about slavery, I, you know, a lot of people don't envision the uh, prison aspect that arose after the Civil War. And now today, you know, before it was race based slavery, although, you know, most of the victims today are predominantly black or African American, uh, followed closely behind by the Hispanic population. Um, but there are a lot of white people locked up in there as well. You mentioned some Asians as well. And so today, anybody can be a slave. We no longer have race based slavery. We got slavery for all today. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. I mean, uh, you know, I currently live here on the West Coast. Over, Actually, I can tell you I live in Arizona. And, and we have a lot, you can see a lot of immigrants coming across the borders. And a lot of those guys are, you know, they're working in the fields. They're picking uh, watermelons and all different vegetables. You know, you're not going to see a, a white individual or, or somebody out there doing it. It's going to be the Mexican population. So, I mean, it, it's, it's like you said, it's growing in all different races. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting thing about the uh, migrant workers who are particularly employed in the agriculture field. I did see an article that since Trump has come into office and has made you know strict border enforcement and even shutting down the asylum process, uh, that it has depleted the United States of many of those workers. And now, guess who's guess who's out there in the fields picking now, DJ? Prisoners, yeah, prisoners yeah. are out yeah. there in them fields yeah. picking picking that that stuff right now. Oh, oh, wow, man. So, DJ, what advice would you give to someone in the corrections? field that you were in, you know, because we've had former prisoner guards uh, who are now, you know, part of our new abolitionist movement who have called in or written to us and say, man, after listening to new abolitionist radio, I just couldn't work as a guard no more. I I, I had to quit because I started seeing it in a different light, you know, and a number of these individuals were former military as well that, that told me, told me this. I mean, what would, what would you advise an individual who finds himself surrounded by corruption and gang-like activity and human rights violations being committed by guards and their guards, uh, a guard? What would you recommend that person um, do? You know, considering how dangerous it, it is, because your life is is still in danger. I, I would imagine, you know, from you being a whistleblower, um, but especially in dangerous while you were still in in there, and that might have been the reason why you left the career. But how would you advise a person who's thinking about going into that field or already in that field and they're witnessing corruption? Just make sure. Uh before you go in into this profession that you have more high morals and high standards and, and you don't follow 
the corruption by the bad apples, such as the uh, prison guards that are rogue and 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 adhere to the code of silence. Um, if you really want this profession and you really want to do well, don't don't think about it just because of the money. You have to go in there and and think about this is a job I have to do every day and show the respect and, and, and you'll get the respect back. Now, in terms of a career choice, um, I've read, I don't know, of course, but I have read, though, that prison guards, especially in the private prison industry, are vast, are, are very underpaid um, for the dangers that they have to face or, or the type of duties that they have, that they're vastly uh, underpaid. And also, you know, I've heard even former prisoners and, and, and family members say that prison guards are doing time with the inmates and that, you know, it can cause them to have psychological problems like PTSD and, and what have you. Did, did, did you suffer any kind of, you know, psychological, emotional harm as a result of that environment you found yourself in? You know, um, yeah, I, I, I was diagnosed uh, with PTSD when I got out through the workers' comp case after I uh, testified in the Senate hearings and, and all the stuff that I had to do and, and go through and endure and all that. But, uh, yeah, we, we, you know, I mean, the prison guard, some, we go there for eight hours a day. Sometimes we'd have to spend 16 hours a day there and stay extra over for another shift. You know, it was mandatory uh, stay because they, they were short on guards. And, uh, yeah, we a lot of times we were doing time with the inmates. But then again, um, this uh, my PTSD resulted on me blowing the whistle against the Department of Corrections and uh, taking them down. Mm-hmm. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, I was trying to find that Senate hearing that where you testified, which resulted mm-hmm. in officials resigning and some reforms being put in place. Um, but how did that process start? I mean, did you go to your immediate supervisor? Did you then go over his head after getting no, no, you know, uh, response on, on your concerns? Did you go to the warden and, and just kept going up the chain? So, I mean, how, how did your whistleblower, um, experience start or track start? Well, I was, I was, um, I was ordered by the, uh, the warden at the prison at Salinas Valley State Prison. He wanted to know my, all my knowledge about the Green Wall, these Green Wall member gangs, and what they were doing and illegal activities. He needed a documentation from me, and, and I had to produce that documentation to him um, in within 72 hours. And I told uh, the warden I worked with these guys and all that. I said, "Well, Mr. Vodka, Officer Vodka, I'm going to order you to write this report. You need to have it to me within 72 hours." Okay, fine. I wrote up the reports, typed it up, stamped it confidential, top and bottom, kept a copy of myself. I always keep copies of everything, and I turned it into the warden. Well, about three months later, I get approached in my, my work site by these prison guards who were part of the Green Wall, and they confronted me, and they verbally quoted verbatim out of my confidential memo what I had written. And then they told me, Officer Vodica, you're done. You're through. I mean, watch your back. You're a dead man. So the warden, the warden went to the, the, warden set me, the warden, yeah, warden he set, set you up. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And that's in the book too. That's wow. In the book and the, his, his deposition testimony in the book, Scotty, there's so much physical and factual evidence in the book. 
the Inspector General's reports in the book about the Green Wall, how they investigated it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Secretary of Corrections memorandums. I mean, I had a lot of backing from a lot of high people when I wrote the book. But then shortly after I wrote the book, I, um, uh, I mean, excuse me, shortly after I testified against the warden, what he did to me, they moved me to another prison overnight to, uh, to move me to another different institution. Mm-hmm. And I stayed there for about eight or nine months, and then I, uh, I ended up responding to an alarm on the yard to a housing unit. And I started running the housing unit, and the prison guards that were behind me all stopped at the door. And when I entered the, the prison block, there was a fight in there between the Hispanics and the blacks. And there was a Hispanic inmate waiting at the door, went ready to clobber me with a broomstick. So these prison guards sort of paid these inmates off to try to take me out. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm glad then, I'm glad that their efforts were not fruitful and they weren't successful um, in, in that. Um, so but how did how did you get the hearing? OK, so the the war after I got the, after the hearing after I I got that um, after I got that, I went through all my stuff and all that. And then um, so I got after nine months of working at this other prison, I, I my, my lawyers told me, you're done. Stop. You're you're done. You're done for the You're it. So. Shortly after that, a couple months later, the senators of the state of California, Senator Jackie Speer, who is now a congresswoman up in the D.C. area, and, and ja- uh, Senator Gloria Romero, they were holding an oversight committee against the Department of Corrections. They were tired of hearing all this um, stuff going on with the Department of Corrections. And uh, they got a hold of my lawyer, and my lawyer got a hold of me. And we went and testified on uh, January 20th, 2004, they testified in the Senate hearings at the state capitol where Schwarzenegger was office. And shortly after I testified on the stand for two hours, I mean, it, it, it hit Fox News, it hit everywhere. And then they moved me off the grid up in the high country for six months to get me away from everything because my life was in danger. Well, we're, we're certainly glad that those efforts to take you out were not successful. Now, from the book, you know, it talks about resignations, and I mean, honestly, DJ, do you really think California did enough to address what you had uncovered? And also, second question, second part to that question is, I'm pretty sure that that prison that you were in where you observed the Green Wall wasn't the only prison that had those type of prison guard guard gangs and what have you. Well, when I we, there's the, one, only, the other thing to Scotty is is I was one guard against standing up against thirty thousand correctional officers or uh, peace officers. That's how many are in the Department of Corrections, state of California. And I, I even asked advice and help from my own union, the president. I confronted him. I said, Officer Jimenez, I'm Officer Vodica. I need your help. He looked at my name tag and goes, Oh, you're Officer Vodica. I've been advised not to talk to you, and he walked away from me. I'm going, what's this all about? You know, you're supposed to represent me. Um, it was the hardest thing to do, you know. And, and, and yes, there's the Green Wall at Susanville State Prison at Folsom. I mean, everybody heard about the Green Wall. Now, uh, just the other day, oh no, excuse me, about two weeks ago, there's uh, the prison guards down in San Diego at the state prison in San Diego are doing the same thing to inmates. They're abusing them. And there's a big civil lawsuit going right now against the Department of Corrections on that. So the Green Wall, it's it's, it's still in existence. Mm. I just brought I just brought it to light when it you know and, and I'm the one who initiated the Green Wall. I'm the one who brought it out. 
but it, but uh, as far as what you can tell in your expert a, a experience is that the problem still exists. Oh yes, I mean, if, 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 if some of these guards are still calling themselves the Green Law. Way hey, we're the Green Law. We're the seven twenty three. They're going around running their mouths after they've been told. If you get caught doing this after you know, because I I revamp policies and procedures in the Department of Corrections. I mean, I also had a, a Senate bill written up due to my case, you know, mm-hmm. to protect whistleblowers to come forward okay. to fear from retaliation. I mean, I I mean, but it, it's still ongoing. It's it's never going to stop. It wasn't as it probably it wasn't as bad as it was when I was going through, but it, it's still ongoing. So, uh, are there not any existing whistleblower protections or that build that your case uh, spurred? Um, is that still in the process of being legislated? No, it's it's in effect. It's it's in effect. I mean, after I, I uh, did my testimony in the state capitol and, and in front of the two senators, they revised the bill, Senate Bill, I don't know, 1341, to protect whistleblowers from the California Department of Corrections to come forward without fear and retaliation. Mm-hmm. So it's in effect. Now, DJ, we do have... Uh, um, audience members who do use contraband to tune in uh, to this to this program. How do you, what would you advise to inmates or uh, how to handle situations that they come across with, with the Green Wall? What would be the best recourse for a prisoner, if there's any, if they become victimized? First thing I would do is, is, is document it. Uh, document it with, on some type of paperwork through a grievance procedure. In, 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 they have at their institution okay. uh, some type of paperwork. And, and another thing is too, is Scotty, is if they can reach out to their family members on the on the outside world, mm-hmm. from inside the prison, the outside, and and tell their family members everything that what's going on inside the prison. And then that family member should contact not the Department of Corrections of uh, their state. Have them contact the inspector general's office. They're the ones that go in and investigate this kind of stuff. Oh wow! You know, the, 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 yeah, the, uh, the contact. You can contact the Department of Corrections, but they're, they're going to brush it under the table. Have them contact the inspector generals uh, of that uh, state. You know, whatever whatever state it resides in, and have the family members on the outside, and and then uh, you know they'll look into it because these. Internal investigations from the, with, within their own department, it, it, it's nonsense. It needs to be investigated from an outside source. You, you know, that's really great advice, uh, DJ, and I'm glad that you shared and I'm glad I asked you the question because, you know, being a part of a new abolitionist movement and linked up with other organizations that advocate for prisoners for on individual cases, as well as collective, you know, collectively abuses that prisoners may be facing in, in a particular prison. But I don't think I've ever heard anyone uh, list the, uh, um, uh, what it, what do you call it? The internal, the attorney general, not the attorney general, the no, inspector the inspe- general. The inspector general. Each state has an inspector general's office. They're, the inspector generals are the ones that go and, and investigate law enforcement or you know, and type of uh, government businesses to see if actually that stuff's happen, actually happening. Okay. And they have a responsibility, and they have a responsibility to, to turn over their documentation to the district attorney's office. Mm. Of, uh, of that state or that city or whatever 
and then it's up to the district attorney office to um, file formal charges against uh, the administration at that prison or prison guards. Now, let me let me give an example as we're we got about five minutes left. Um, if I need to take more time, I can. But let, let me give you an example. For example, I saw on Twitter, um, you know, some of the uh, organizations I'm, I, I follow on Twitter, and they will, for example, they sent out a tweet asking for a phone zap to this particular prison. I don't recall the name, but, you know, it could apply to any prison, and said that they were denying inmates showers. And so they were were you know doing a phone zap, calling the prison and and different prison officials um, to put pressure on them to allow these guys to get showers and, and take care of their personal hygiene uh, needs. So you're telling me that those likely are to go nowhere, and that who should be targeted with these um um uh. A collective protest by those on the outside is the inspector general of the state. Correct. The inspector general, not the attorney general, but the inspector general. They're the ones that uh, investigate uh, the government or, or state agencies or law enforcement. So they're the ones that go in and, and look into that. They're, the inspector general is uh, usually falls under the governor of that state. Okay. So they fall under that umbrella. Okay. So they, they do the investigation because a lot of the prison systems in, in each state have their own internal affairs investigations unit. But it's that good old boy thing, you know. That's right. That good old hey, I mean, and, and 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 they're gonna go go along, come along, you know. So the best thing is for these guys to do is to keep documentation, keep a lot of documentation, write it up, make sure you get uh, officers' names, time, dates, and all that. Keep that information. And if their family members coming to visit them at the visiting room or whatever, and they can bring that documentation out, they can give that documentation to their family member, and that family member has the documentation to prove it to the inspector general. Okay. All right. Well, DJ, I want to thank you, man, for spending um, an hour of your time with us tonight. Um, before we close out, is there any final thoughts that you would like to share with the listening audience? Um. No, I think I've covered mostly everything, Scotty, that what you talked about. It's just that, you know, I mean, like my book, my book is, uh, there's no, Scotty, there's no book ever written as my book. I mean, I, I mean, I, there's names in the book, you know, there's, there's officers' names, prison guards' names, awards' names. There's so much factual evidence in this book that proves that the Green Wall did exist in the state of California and it's still ongoing. I mean, there, and I've never been challenged or I've never been, uh, you know, held on a lawsuit or somebody come after me for defamation because everything I got in this book, I've got all the factual evidence mm. with me to support my claim on this book. The documentation. Documentation is very, very important. Very important. Well, again, um, DJ, I want to thank you, man, for being the individual that you are. As I stated, you could have just turned a blind eye to it. Um, you could have went along with it, you know, but you chose not to because, as you stated, your your parents raised you to have certain morals and values. So you, you took a courageous stand. You could have lost your life for it, but I hope that you will be an inspiration for other people who work in the system that, hey, 
you don't have to keep going along with this. This isn't right. And, you know, I should stand on what's right. And, and so I just want to thank you again, DJ. And I hope this ain't the last time that we'll have an occasion to talk to you on New Abolitionist Radio. Contact me anytime, Scotty. And thanks for uh, allowing me to come on your talk show. All right. Well, thank you, DJ. And you, you and your family be blessed. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was um, DJ Vodka. Please check out his book, The Green Wall. I have linked to it in the program description if you're listening on the network uh, because we distribute the podcast far and wide um, that doesn't have the uh, links and what have you, then just look for his book. Um, On Amazon is where I was able to find it. And it is titled The Green Wall. I want to give you a exact uh, title. Give me a, 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 um, a moment here. The Green Wall, the story of a brave prison guard's fight against corruption inside the United States' largest prison system. So, again, the United States has the largest prison population than any other nation on the face of this earth. They say that China and I don't know. I have I did an interview with my cousin who lived and worked in China for 2 years. She said that she didn't feel uh that she felt uh safer there than anywhere she's ever ever been. But we hear about let's say Russia or North Korea or China, whatever adversary that the United States government, who's ever in power at the time, has chosen. We hear about how brutal they are, how repressive their regimes are. But I will point out to you that none of them have come even close to matching the prison population that the United States has and that the United States is making a lot of profit from the incarceration of these prisoners. And and therefore, it's slavery. Slavery has all has always been about trafficking in human bodies. Before 1865, we had a race-based slavery where Africans and, and black people um, were targeted for enslavement. After 1865, now we got slavery for all. Okay, and a lot of people don't recognize that. And and still the same victims, um, majority are black, but now they are Hispanics. You have Asians, you have Native Americans, and you have whites. There is no reason we shouldn't be able to build a coalition around ending slavery in this country, which starts with the repeal and replacement of the 13th Amendment so that there are no exceptions for slavery and we abolish it in all its forms. If you believe like I believe that we need a movement to end slavery once and for all in this nation, then I implore you to get in where you fit in to this new abolitionist movement. With that said, peace and blessings to all. Be safe out there. Land of the free, it lies the home of the homeless. Too many die every day, and we really just want this freedom.